Welcome back, baseball fans, to another edition of the Prep Baseball Report of North Carolina Podcast. I'm Brandon Hall. He's Matt Payne, and we're going to sit down and talk a little bit about high school baseball across North Carolina and uh, some other items that may be affecting recruiting or the state playoffs or whatever else we want to get into. Matt, how you doing, buddy? Doing good. Another busy week. I know I traveled a little bit last week, so I feel a little bit out of the loop, um, You know, having not been to quite as many games as we're used to covering, but we're still trying to unpile from our spring break stuff and, and get all of that stuff written out without just bombarding the website all at once and, um, you know, getting ready to, you know, kind of start looking ahead to state playoffs. It's that time of year. Yep. Conference tur- tournaments next week for most conferences. And then uh, looking forward to the day the brackets come out. And I'm sure we'll, we'll probably do something with that and be looking at those. And uh, I mean, it's the most exciting time of the year for high school baseball. There you go. And our jobs get easier because it goes from being 400 teams to 200 fairly quickly <laughs> and from 200 to 100 and 100 to 50. So it keeps kind of funneling down and, you know, we'll, we'll continue our coverage, but you know, it's easier to get to everything. You don't feel like you're missing as much. And, you know, talking about that, let's talk a little bit. Our, our player of the weeks came out on um, Tuesday. Our diamond notes came out on Wednesday. This podcast should drop on Thursday. Um, and obviously all of that stuff is on the website, prepbaseballreport.com. Top, click on North Carolina and then go to our news section and click on that. But Matt, as you're, as you're filtering through all of that information, um, you know, obviously we spotlight the player of the week every week. We do some stuff on them on social and they've got a story up and we are, we're highlighting their stats. Um, but it's kind of that time of year where we're looking at it going, man, there's some players that have had really good seasons that we haven't spotlighted. Is there a name that kind of comes to mind? Um, just in terms of the guy hadn't gotten recognition yet, but we're trying to, we just, we just haven't been able to pick him for that spot yet. Yeah. Uh, Tate Jones at, uh, Walter Williams high school, you know, he's in there every week, uh, pitching seems like he, he throws a complete game shut out or maybe gives up one run strikes out double digits. And every week you think that's, you scroll through it. He's the player of the week. And then there's, a uh, somebody in there who, who threw a no hitter in a rivalry game or, punched out 16 or 17 against a quality opponent. And it's like you, you try to get it to him every week and his numbers have been great. And it just, it just doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. It's funny you say that name because it was the exact name I was thinking of. Um, and it, it, it has, been. I think we've done, we've done eight weeks. Um, we've done seven awards. I think he's finished second in the pitching four or five times out of the seven awards that we've given for pitcher of the week. And it really has been, he punched 12 and somebody else punched 17 he throws a one hitter, somebody throws a no hitter, but it's week after week after week. And I think that's kind of helped as we're going through it. We're wanting to give, give Tate some recognition and, and, and put him out there because the year has been so good. And he's kind of kept Williams, um, you know, he, he's propelled them into a position where they've got a chance to do some special things. And we just haven't been able to put his picture on that slide yet and say, Hey, here's our player of the week. So, um, it, Let me uh, give you his stats right here, the, the yeah. latest ones we have. He's through 46 innings. He's punched 75. Uh, he's allowed six total runs, and opponents are hitting 106 against him. So have and, a and year the year take The fastball's good. The, the delivery's athletic. The arm's athletic. You watch him, and it's not just overwhelming, oh, my gosh, look at the power stuff and – he can pitch a little bit. I mean, the ball's sinking and moving. He's got a slider off it. He's got, you know, he can attack hitters in multiple ways. So he's kind of a fun guy to watch in that aspect too. So 
Um, yeah, I talked to their head coach at Walter Williams yesterday. I'm, I'm hoping to get out there next week. Um, obviously, the, the Seahawks T-ball team, we're, we're, we're in full go mode right now. So trying to balance schedules and see my daughter play as many times as I can and also see all these high school guys has um, been an interesting task here of late. Um, but we're, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong on this. We try not to root for anybody. But there comes a point in the year where we're like, okay, we haven't seen this guy and he's taken off in the last three weeks. We need them to win this week so they get to next week. <laughs> Definitely. And then uh, <laughs> you see those guys and, you know, the you, you start checking scores every night, kind of whether it's a player you've liked or a, a team you're kind of starting to like or, or pulling for, you you seem to check those box scores first. That's a good segue into, you know, kind of getting ready for the state tournament. You know, obviously we've got um, our power 25 is out. Um, we've got teams that are ranked uh, in the region. And I think it's we got eight or nine teams in, on the mid-Atlantic region rankings. We've got two teams in the national rankings at number 23 and number 25 in the country, the East Forsyth and Wake Forest. Uh, East Forsyth took a loss on Tuesday. Uh, they'll, they'll get a, get a chance again, I think, on Thursday or Friday to play West Forsyth again. But West Forsyth knocked them off. Harrison Lewis was absolutely dynamic. Um, pitched a really, really good game. And I think that's a great sign in terms of where West is. But I think it's also a good thing for East is that sense of urgency. This can happen on any given night. We can run into an arm. Not that they played bad. It was a 4-2 to two game. Um, Norby threw for East and you know, they're right there in it and, you know, just had one four-run inning, kind of knock them off, off the block. But as we're looking ahead, Matt, who are some of the teams that you're kind of excited to see what they do in the postseason, regardless of where they are in our Power 25, teams that you feel like are priming themselves to make runs? Uh, I immediately go to that conference. Uh, you look, they have uh, West and East Forsyth. Uh, Reagan has been playing really, really well right now. And I think uh, last time I looked, they were high in the, and the RPI in North Carolina. And uh, then you also have Davey in there who's has a good offensive club. They may not have the, the dominant arm, but, right. you know, those those teams from that league, when they get in the playoffs, you know, they, they can beat anybody there early. So, if, you know, you, you draw one of them teams in the first two rounds, be really interested and see what happens there. And, um, you know, it looks like Providence is starting to play better. Uh, started the year in our Power 25, struggled. Um, they've had some big wins lately and, uh, a team, a team I like is Southern Lee, um, haven't been able to get them in the power 25, uh, saw them at, um, battle at the boneyard a few weeks ago over spring break and they have some arms and they play the game hard. That'll, that's a a sleeper team for me heading into the playoffs. Yeah. And and I'm looking through some of the 4A East. I mean, the, the, the East, the 4A you got Hanover, you got Pinecrest, you got Middle Creek, you got Wake Forest. Um, and we look at the West real quick. Um, obviously, East Forsyth, we've talked about Reagan right there um, in their conference. Weddington, who, again, is from a conference down here in Char- the Charlotte area that really primes teams to be ready for the tournament. Uh, T.C. Roberson, um, again, is starting to pull away in their conference. Audrey Kell in Providence, you mentioned. Uh, Alexander Central has an arm. We haven't talked a whole lot about Hickory Ridge, but Hickory Ridge has uh, Garrett Pine on the front end, and they have some intriguing depth in their lineup. Um, you know, so at the 4A level, you know, we, we hear those names a lot. I'm going to go down real quick. Let's look at the 2A East. Um, and when we look at North Lenore as a school, they're 13-2 and two right now. has been intriguing to kind of follow. 
Um, uh, Whiteville sitting at 10 and six, but played a very strong schedule. We all know what they do in, at the end of the year. Midway, 16 and two, played a, a fairly good schedule. And we'll kind of see what happens as they get into it. Look at the 2A West. East Rutherford had a good year, 16 and three. Randleman, 17 and four. And they've been tested. They've played a really good schedule. So it's not the same Randleman as last year. They were just rolling through people. I think this club's going to play with a sense of urgency, um, but they've also learned how to win some close games. So I think as they get into the tournament, it's going to be a little bit different club. Um, and Matt, I'm going to let you um, talk a little bit about some of these clubs. I can get back to where I want to be. The 1A is where I kind of wanted to be. Is we don't spend a ton of, ton of time on some of these 1A teams, just you know, smaller, smaller schools, smaller regions. You know, trying to get people to the website and things like that. Maybe not as big a fan base. But Roxborough Community, a team that's made a run each of the last couple of years, they're sitting at 10 and 3. Voyagers played well, played a decent schedule. North Duplin was kind of a team out of nowhere last year that made a run. They're back at 17 and 2 this year. Um, and that's on the east side. As we look at the west, Cherryville, 16 and 4. Um, and they've got a guy on the front end. Um, that, that has won a bunch of games for them. Uari Charter is playing very well. They're 11 and 9, but they've played an extremely tough schedule for a 1A school. Um, you know, and when we look through, I think the, the playoffs, as we're looking through all this stuff, we're looking at there being a lot of competitive balance. Maybe some first round games we'll be able to sit there and fill in our bracket, but I don't know that as we get to second round, you and I are going to match a ton moving through the rest of the tournament because. It may, it may come down to who that starter is and, and how do we know about their depth? Do they have a bullpen? Do they have do they have one big inning in them? Can they, can they come back from a 5-2 deficit by hanging a six spot in six? And those things are going to play out in tournament. Yeah, you you know, you, a team for me in the 2A West is uh, West Stanley. Uh, having a good year. A uh, couple, couple early, but they do have arms and they got some thump in that lineup too. And then you have East Surrey with uh, Folger Boaz, yep. uh, he can beat anybody, and their experience for playing uh, deep in the playoffs. And then you got Moorhead sitting right there in the West with uh, Anderson Nance too. So uh, that'll get interesting there. East Rutherford's having a having a good year, and um, be a lot of matchups. And I know we talked about the four A earlier, but you mentioned New Hanover and Hoggard and all those teams in that conference with Topsville. I mean, there'll be some teams out of that conference that have lower seeds that you may see in the third or fourth round of the playoffs. Yeah, and. The, the groupings of the playoffs. It'll be interesting to see how the groupings play out because obviously it seems like it, it's Raleigh versus Raleigh, Charlotte versus Charlotte, Greensboro high point against each other, Wilmington against each other. But there's always that one part of the bracket where somebody travels early and they get out of their region. And I think that has a chance for maybe a three seed in a conference to pull an upset early and get out of their area and go play in some other areas and kind of show off the strength of their what they've done. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the team that obviously if New Hanover wins their conference, they're going to be at home. But a team like Hoggard, a top sill, may finish a little bit further down, may, may not get the seeding they actually deserve. And they go on the road and they play a team they're just better than because of that seeding. And then, boom, they got a chance to take off because now they're kind of in that pocket of that that bracket where they're outside of that their own area. So. Excuse me. It's always interesting to see how teams handle that, and then with that team also, how do they handle the road? How do they handle being on the bus? How do they handle getting out, getting back to school late? 
staying engaged in school because we, we know for whatever reason, baseball players and their academics kind of trend together. When we're playing well, we do well academically. And when we're doing well academically, we play well. And so I think those things can kind of trend together uh, through May as well. Yeah, another interesting uh, place to look is the 3A West. Uh, you know, you have the, the conference that has North Lincoln, who's playing really well right now, uh, East Lincoln, St. Stephen's, yep. all those guys you know, playing the same conference. They'll be a good team with a low seed out of that league. Uh, then you have, have West Henderson with Truett Manuel up in the mountains. Uh, gives you a front-line arm. And then uh, West Rowan, you've seen a few times this year. Yep. They, they're hot right now. They swept East Rowan last week, and, uh, you know, they, they may not have a dominant arm, but they do have a little depth in the lineup, and I know Coach Graham will have them go, them guys playing hard. And, and they, they, they've given their, their arms some confidence. They've got some younger guys in the front end, but they played really stellar defense behind them and basically just telling those, hey, throw strikes. Just throw strikes, and we're going to be fine because that lineup's got a chance to score five, six, seven runs every night and put some pressure on guys. So um, the other thing that's interesting out of that region is, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody when I say this, but you get a little bit of the 1A, 2A feel in some bigger areas in that Lincoln County, at uh, West Henderson, at even T.C. Roberson. You you have that hometown. They kind of really buy into that school. A lot of people that went to that school are still living in that area. Um, grandparents are in that area. So when they get to the playoffs, I can remember going to East Lincoln a couple of years ago who wasn't highly regarded. They weren't a high seat, but they got into the third round and all of a sudden you show up and there's freaking 2,500 people at a stadium that really only holds 600. And they are packed and crammed in there and I couldn't see anything. I'm trying to evaluate pitchers and I basically just sat, got my popcorn and watched the game because I couldn't do any evaluation. I was such a bad angle. But the, the <laughs> environment was special. And the environment at this level, and we see it, we, we see it at the pro level. We saw it in, in the World Baseball Classic. The environment can affect outcomes. Um, you know, players, I think, at the pro level, at the college level, have a chance to adapt to the environment fairly quickly. But the environment can affect how things are going to happen. You know, one bad inning and a one-game deal, and you're you're done. And so, if you don't adjust to the crowd and get into your game fairly quickly. Boom! You're down four. You're playing uphill, and you start running out of outs um, in a big time hurry. Yeah, that's uh, a thing that's exciting for us is going to some of those places and, and catching the good atmosphere and uh, some of those big matchups. And uh, you know, we'll have there'll be some uh, very intriguing matchups early, and there'll be some, some teams that you know we think could possibly win a state title that go down early. Yeah, yeah. So always a fun time of year and. You know, we've seen – I haven't done the count recently, but I know we're up over 220 high schools across the state that we've seen. Um, you know, ideally we get a chance to see a bunch more here in the next two weeks and then into the high into the playoff season. I think we'll start to see some of the teams we've already seen because, you know, we're trying to follow talent, and typically talent will lead itself through the tournament. So um, great time of year. But with all the things that we've seen, we're going to get into something a little bit – I consider to be fun. Now, this can be taken the wrong way as us attacking people, and I hope it's not taken that way, but things that drive me, things that drive you nuts at games, pet peeves. You're watching, and it's just something that you just you just want to stop the game. And if I was running practice, I would stop it. Um, if, you know, If it was an inter-squad game, we would just shut it down and get it right. Um, but 
you know, even as I'm talking about it, I've got more coming to mind. So I'm going to continue to write <laughs> down some of pet peeves here. But Matt, we'll let you start. Give me, give me one of your pet peeves in terms of things that you see at games that that you're like, okay, this is not right. This the probably doesn't affect winning and losing, but bad music. You okay. Know, set, create, creating a little atmosphere there. You go into some of these parks and it's a big moment for those kids. And, uh, you know, you go in some places and they just have good music, good feel. Uh, you know, it's about to be an exciting game, big game. Uh, look at that. And then um, never fails. Guys going to the plate and they're going up the hit and nobody went and got the bat for them. You know, I know we used to do the, the – So the hitter, the hitter has to get out of his routine. Yep. And now he's the bat boy before he's getting ready to have the biggest at bat of his career. Yeah, coming up with second, third, you know, chance to win a game, and he's got to go find the bat that's over near the other team's dugout, throw it back, jog back to the box, and uh, and then get ready to hit. So um. I'm going to start. I'm gonna, and again, yeah, so it's interesting how we start because you can you can tell our backgrounds a little bit, but I'm going to start with defensive positioning. Oh, it, it's I, just take a piece of paper. If you're a fan of high school baseball, take a piece of paper and draw the field. Okay, draw the draw the bases, and you don't have to be an artist, but then draw the outfield like your foul territory, and kind of mark on the paper how much foul territory there is, and then watch the left fielder and the right fielder. They will split the distance in about eighty percent of games we go see between the foul territory and the center fielder, and so where they should be is if I'm the right fielder, I should be on the line created between third and second base. Just extend that line all the way out. That's that's straight up. First base to second base, my left fielder, that's straight up. And so because the game's played in the middle, you see guys start to shift because they want to be in between the shortstop or second baseman or the shortstop or third baseman or the second baseman and first baseman, or they want to cover, you know, just feel like they've got everything covered in foul territory. Foul balls don't hurt you. Foul ball's fine. But when singles fall, when when a ball is hit in the air for five seconds and we don't get anywhere close to it and ends up being a double, that's a problem. And and, and now we're looking at the pitcher going, man, he's he's got to be better than that. No, he just got a fly ball. That that should be an out. We should have been positioned better. So that that's my first one. And we could go on the infield too and start talking about where the third baseman are and the first baseman are and where we are on bunt situations where we are on two strike situations. And I know arm strength plays into it a little bit, but not as much as we're seeing. And, you know, I used to mark this stuff down and kind of keep track, but you would see hundreds of hundreds of hits a year because of positioning. And if we just be positioned differently, yeah, maybe we'd give up a hit here or a double there, but the positioning does affect games. And, and we really do see when you get in the state playoffs, teams that position their players better win games, especially one run games. Matt, you got yeah, a second yeah. one for me? No, you see, you see a lot of teams defending foul territory. Uh, we, we see that all the time. Uh, going with that is with a runner on second base, it drives me crazy when you have both middle guys trying to hold the runner at second base. Yeah. You got them both in there, you know, going in and out, and it just uh, – it, it opens up holes, and it's kind of like the, the first and third play where guy will steal, and then both middle guys – one guy's <laughs> trying to cover, and another guy's mm-hmm. trying to – run the fake cut or the cut, and then you just got the middle of the field wide open and somebody shoots one through there and uh, run scores. And the guy on first may have a chance to score there if you, you know, if your outfield's out of position. 
runs are at a premium. If we're just going to give up runs, uh, you know, especially in a one a, a one game and done scenario, we're just going to give up a run because we're going to take both middle guys and cross them. My second one's similar to yours, and it's covering second base on steals. So the way we taught it was if you got a runner on first and it's less than two outs, obviously both middle infielders should be at double play depth. We're going to sacrifice a little bit of range for the chance to get two outs and get out of the inning. When they're at double play depth, they should be able to get to the bag and be sitting and waiting on the ball. We get a lot of pop times, and we see a lot of video, and we get a lot of video sent to us on pop times. One eight four in game, one nine one in game. And when you really look at the video and you watch where the second baseman or shortstop catch the ball, they're running through the catch. They're not stopped and waiting on the ball to come. They're running, and they're about six feet in front of the bag. And so now as you're watching this podcast, I want you to think back to your high school season. How many times from where you're sitting in the stands have you seen your second baseman and shortstop catch it and tag and miss the guy by three feet? Now, you can't tell you missed him. You just see the umpire go safe, and you're like, what? How is he safe? He That ball beat him. The, the tag missed him by six feet because the, the guy's so far in front of the bag. He's got to get to the bag. That's an out. If we throw it on, on, on plane, it's an out. So he's got to get to the bag and be sitting there. We have a runner in first. The offense is forcing us to leave something open. So we're either going to do one of two things. We can let him have second, or we've got to, we've got to vacate where we don't think they're going to hit the ball. So if it's a right-handed hitter, we should have the second baseman. Most guys are going to pull the ball on the ground. Second baseman should be covering. He should be in double play depth, and he should be able to get there in time to sit there and watch it. Watch it. With two outs, one guy is at double play depth. He can't be at, at his normal depth and still get to second base. There's not a single athlete in this state that can do that. They have to be shortened up to be able to get there, and that's just the way it is. So I'm watching that, and, and when you're watching the game and thinking about that, if, I, if I'm an offensive coach and I see both guys back, immediately I'm thinking second base is ours. There's nothing they can do if I have a decent jump and, and even an average runner where they're going to throw me out because they're not going to be on time to the back. Yeah, I saw it a couple of times last night. Middle guys late to the back, uh, you know, really late. Um, going with that base running, guys not moving up on dirt balls. And then uh, you watch some base runners. There's some uh, there's some bad secondary leads out there where yeah. guys don't really get, it, get an aggressive secondary. Cross off down base running. <laughs> ball hit down the line, and uh, you know, the, you think the guy had a chance to score, but bad secondary, and you know that in those high school games, if you can get a guy in scoring position quick, you know, it, it changes how guys are pitched. It gives you a chance to add another run, and, and runs are at a premium this time of year. Base running, base running equals runs, and it's not just running hard. It, it's it's the turns and the angles. You know, when do we go first to third? When do we press first to third? If we haven't been pressing first to third on singles throughout the entire high school season, and then we're going to do it in the state playoffs, we're going to get somebody thrown out because they don't know how to go to first to third. But now that run is – it's a sixth inning and we're down one and there's one out and we're going to get to third base and this guy hasn't gone first to third all year. He just shuts it down about halfway to second. Now he's going to press it. He's going to get thrown out. The, the other thing off of that that drives me absolutely insane, and this is my background because – this was something that was instilled in me at a younger age and then hammered in at the college level with the guys that I, I coached with and played for is the third base coach. And again, we're not attacking anybody. So don't, you know, don't take this to, 
you know, oh my gosh, they saw his play. He's talking about, I'm not talking about any one coach. You coached third for a while, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. Enjoyed it. Runner on, runner on first. He's going to have a decision to make on a ball behind him. So he, he gets a secondary ball hit down the first baseline. And maybe it's, maybe it's going to be hit behind him and he's already in the four hole. Where are you positioned so that he can see you as he's getting to second base? Uh, nobody's ahead of him. I'm trying to get towards the left field to get yeah, him a view so when you're, he's coming around. Second. You're down the line. So he's, he's coming at you, and his head turn isn't cranked. He's running the second, and it's just a quick peek, but you're not a full 90-degree turn. He's, he can see you, and that's the ball that he needs help with. Anything in front of him, base runner should be able to go on their own and see it. Now let's say you have a runner on runners on first and second. And uh, is that is that what I want? Nope, let's go runner on first. Runner on first, ball hit down the, the first baseline into the corner. So you're gonna go down to left field. You obviously he's coming, so you're waving him. Now, where do you have to go? Because you've got to make I a decision with the first base runner to get whether or not he's gonna score. Yeah, I'm getting down the line close to home plate. To, to yep. help him out, and then so you've got to go know, sixty to ninety feet, right? Yep. Get okay. Down, now, and that way, I can I can stop him as late as possible if I need to. Okay. Let's say you score him. Okay. You make a decision. Bang. We're going to roll him through. Now you have the batter runner. Now where do you have to get to? You got to get back up, and and you got to get, get all the way back that guy score, and you got you got to get back up to to give him a read or help him with the slide or whatever. So you're. You can be pretty active over there, you know, trying to see everything. And depending on the park, you know, seeing balls in the corner, you can lose visualization. And uh, right. And then, you know, I think also doing that in inner squad, so base runners get used to where you're going to be and and how, and how you do it. And and what's your terminology? Yeah, yeah. Or if they can, uh, you know, even hear you or or what your signals are. So so two points on that. One, we played against Rice when I was at Charlotte, and Wayne Graham coached third. He was 136 years old. I mean, it. we put a watch on him going to the mound. I know he was taking his time, but he couldn't have gone much faster. And from the dare dugout to the mound was two minutes and 25 seconds. <laughs> but he coached third, and he, at his age, he got past third base, and he got up the line. Now, he was positioned himself pre-pitch. So when the ball was hit, he wasn't having to move. He was already in the right spot pre-pitch. So he would have to move here or there. But he got to the right spot. When he couldn't, a couple years later, he was in the dugout. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you do this right, you you have a chance to steal some runs. Because for us, when we when we played at, at Wilmington, we played at Wilmington, it was instilled. Um, our third base coach there did a great job. Uh, coach Wilkinson is now the AD. was it? Barton. He's in South Carolina now. Um, but anyway, no, there was no verbal. And so everything was handsets because we're going to play in an environment. We're going to play in front of 8,000 people. You're not going to hear him anyway. So it's no verbal. And his deal was if he's running at you and his hands are up, that's the stop sign. He's going to, he's going to physically go at you and the hands are up. So he's going to be early enough with his stop sign that he can move towards the runner and stopping. But the other thing that he would do at times on bang, bang plays at the plate, especially from left field where the third baseman's the cut, is he would be rolling the guy home, and then as the guy passed him, he would start to run past the runner. So as soon as he got past the runner, then his hands would go up, and he would be going, stop, 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 stop. He would get cuts. The third baseman would cut it and start diving towards the bag 
And then now we bang, bang plays at home. There's not even a play. And so you get base runners used to what you're going to do. You can steal runs. You can make close plays, non-plays. You can have your runner that, that scores first to home and get your home your, your batter runner to third base without, without a play because they don't hesitate. They know exactly where you're going to be, and they're full speed all the way. They're never looking to see what's happening, especially with that ball behind them. So yeah, that, that was those third base. Those guys are reading the throw into the cutoff, man, too. And a lot of guys who are locked in. If you see that, the relay guy's going to have to move his feet one way or another. You can really, you can really push it and still run because even if he catches that ball, he's not in a good throwing position to to throw one to the plate, and you can still run right there. So I, I coach. This gets me to my next one, which was cuts and relays, and, and, and the positioning on cuts and relays. And it can be very specific, but. We're always throwing ahead of runners. We're always positioned to the, to the lead runner. Um, you know, where are you supposed to be? A ball down the third baseline. You don't. You should not line up in a straight line. You should actually be in fair territory. Even if it angles the throw a little bit, we should be in fair territory because where's the runner going to be? He's going to be in foul territory. And if we're in foul territory, we're angling the throw through him. So we've got to get back so our catcher has a chance. But the, the one um, that always gets me, and I watch it every single day with infield outfield, I coached at the college level for almost 20 years. I saw two guys thrown out at home plate in almost 20 years on balls that are first baseman or third baseman cut and then threw to the catcher on sack fly, not, not a tandem relay, but on sack flies or base hits with a runner on second. Do you remember anybody in your time being thrown out at the plate from second base on a single when a ball was cut by the first baseman or third baseman? No, I, I did see it in a high school game this year, though. But uh, okay. you don't see it much, and and that and that is a good point because the, the playing level is a little bit different. The speed of the game is different. So at the high school level, maybe we have to work on that a little bit. But throws need to be through cutoff guys so they can redirect, not so that they can direct the ball where it's supposed to go. So that means the cutoff guy needs to be in line with where the, where the ball is going, and then the cutoff guy needs to be working to redirect the ball to get the backside runner. But we see it time after time after time. And, and I, I've got seven or eight what would have been bang, bang plays at the plate this year where the first baseman or third baseman cut it and relayed it. If they had just let it go through, probably a short hop for the catcher, and it would have been a great play for him to pick through and tag. But they have no shot when they cut it. Guy's safe by four feet. Yeah, either, or they're not getting deep enough in their setup either to where – you know, it's, yeah. they're so far out that it makes the read easy. And, you know, the, the trail guy, his read's easy and uh, just never getting into position from the start. That's it. We always taught um, 30 feet. Um, we should be 30 feet, 60 feet from home plate, 30 feet, feet from the bag. And that's that's that area. That way we can be athletic and move through a ball. If we let it go through, it should be a long hop into the catcher. So. Um, and again, arm strength matters. The, the talent and speed of the game is different. So it can be, there's some things high school coaches have to make sure that they, they understand with each team. You know, we'll go back to cuts and relays. When we did our tandems, we did our tandems with our middle guys. Our first baseman was never in a tandem relay. He was always trailing the runner to second. Well, that ball down the first baseline, your shortstop had better be freaking athletic. You, you want to know why coaches want guys that can run at short and guys that have quickness? It's that play. They've got to get all the way across and be on time to, to set up 15 feet behind the second baseman and still handle that, that relay and direct it. 
while seeing base runners, while communicating with the second baseman. Um, and so that athleticism may not exist at the high school level. And you may have a first baseman that's athletic. You know, typically at, that, at the college level, the shortstop's going to be the better athlete. You want him handling the ball more. But at, your, at the high school level, you may have a pitcher playing first just to save his arm some, and we, we don't mind him handling the baseball. So coaches have those decisions to make. It's yearly because their rosters do change every year. You got one more for me? Uh, yeah, you see, I mean, you see it all the time. Pitchers, pitchers get breaking ball heavy uh, at times, especially uh, down near the bottom of the orders, and they get in a lot of, you know, two, two, three, two counts. And, you know, we the pitch count rule, a lot of times if you're going to win a game, you need that guy to go seven. And, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're spinning up breaking ball after breaking ball to seven, eight, nine guys and a lot of deep counts. And uh, instead of, you know, maybe just throwing a fastball and uh, getting some weak contact there early. Yeah, if I'm an evaluator and I'm, I'm out evaluating pitchers, can they get outs with their fastball in high school? can't get outs with, their, with your fastball in high school. You're not going to get outs with your fastball in college. And if you can't get outs with your, your, your fastball on the college level, you'd better have just something nasty because just having length or big breaking balls don't matter. It better, it better have some, some steep depth to it and, and be late with its action. And so we do need to see, can we get outs with our fastball? And I think it's a teachable thing. I think it's okay for guys to give up hits, especially as freshmen and sophomore. It's okay in February and March. Get up, give up some hits. Let them learn because the more they do it early, the more they'll, they'll figure it out as they go. And that leads me into mine. Um, it, it's, it's a pet peeve of mine. Again, it goes back to my pitching background, but I call it two-strike energy. Um, you know, you, you're dominating the zone, boom, strike one, boom, strike two. And then all of a sudden we get really defensive with the way we're going to pitch. We don't want him to hit it. We we don't want to give him something to hit. We This idea of don't. We threw strike one because I'm going to hit the glove. Boom. I throw strike two because I'm going to hit the glove. Boom. Now, on my third pitch, I don't want to do something. That doesn't work. You can't control don'ts. Don't let him swing. I can't control as a pitcher whether or not he swings. I don't care how bad a pitch is or, or I could throw it and roll it up there. I could throw it over the backside. He still has his own mind that he could swing. So this idea that we don't want him to do something on that 0-2 pitch, we, we were very offensive in our philosophy. Now, we would expand, but we were going to expand to where we wanted to. We had a specific spot we were throwing, and we were being extremely aggressive to that spot, and that pitch led directly to the next pitch and how we were going to do it. So if we bounced, if we elevated fastball, we wanted to elevate off of where our breaking ball started. And so we were able to teach our guys that. If we're, if we're burying breaking ball, we want it to be in the strike zone at decision time. So that, that makes you know that difference in terms of does the ball start up here or does the ball start lower. If it's fastball away, we're going to hit the glove. Our catcher has to know exactly where to set up because our pitcher's job is not to not let him hit it. Our pitcher's job is to hit the glove and everything else kind of takes care of itself. So <clears throat> that, that two-strike energy, and you see it all the time, oh, we've got to be better. We gotta, don't do that. we got to be – he just made two great pitches. Okay, we missed. Make another great pitch, dude. Let's go. And and when we stay controlled and we and we pile up great pitch after great pitch after great pitch after great pitch, over the course of seven innings, we're going to win. But if we get really filtered into, oh, my gosh, don't, in an 0-2 count, then it can go haywire. And we've seen it go haywire really quickly on good arms. Yeah, 
you know, kind of with that, you're getting a lopsided game pitcher out there and, you know, trying to trying to pick guys off and, uh, you know, with a five-run lead and all of a sudden ball gets down the line, they got on third, then you get a walk and, you know, you just kind of – you get you have all the momentum, just, you know, stay with the hit or get the out and, you know, get your team off the field. Just do what we do, baby. Just do what we do. <laughs> we do it every day in practice. Just do it. If you're not doing it in practice right now, you're not going to do it in a state championship game. But we see it. We'll see a guy try to speed his pickoff move up and try to throw one over to the first baseman. I almost got him. And now it's down the line. He goes first to third, and now we're in a nut-cutting situation. Just do what we do. If you're average every day in practice, then you just be average in the state championship game or the first round game or whatever. You, you can't you can't elevate. If you want to be, be at a higher level in those games, be at a higher level in practice. Make those mistakes. In, how fast can you go in practice? And then can you dial it back a little bit in games? Um, and it gives you those situations and ton of, ton of great coaches, ton of great programs in our state. Um, and it's easy from the sideline. I, I do enjoy being a Monday morning quarterback. I do enjoy my, my pay and my contract not being uh, aligned with the play that we're seeing on the field. So it does <laughs> allow me to be critical of those things. So um, th- 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 that was fun for me. I got that off my chest, but I, we see a lot of really good things. We're out watching games. It's just fun to kind of go through these things sometimes because we don't get to do it on the field anymore. Yep, and you see the frustration in the coaches' faces when you you know they've worked on it in practice and coached it, and then you know the the mistake still happens. You know, like you know we've we've been doing that for two months now, and it still happens. And we've both been there before, so so uh, it does. And it's amazing. It's amazing the difference between seniors and sophomores. You know, it's, it, older players have seen more. They've done more. They've been in the speed of the game more. Being older matters as long as they're still engaged. You know, and I think with most of the teams that we've followed this year, especially the ones that we've had in our Power 25, their senior classes have done a really good job of staying engaged. We haven't started looking forward to their college deal. Um, I know where I was this past weekend, I think we saw like six schools' proms come through the different ballrooms. So it's, it's kind of prom season and some of that. So there's still some things that those seniors have to get through and stay engaged with as their season comes. But I think if you're having a good year at this point and you've played well after spring break, now you can really start to set that goal of how deep can we go in the state tournament. And you can see the teams that are having fun and having fun playing together uh, versus some of the teams that maybe are a little uptight or, or feel some pressure, and, and that definitely makes a big difference in the playoffs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see it every year. Just get, get that first win and then, then it can kind of calm down, but getting that first win. Um, and I, I got a, a specific team in 1994 as a, as, that I point to every year, but the that first one's a tough one. You get that first one and then you can kind of relax into your, into your mode and get used to the tournament play. So let's, um, let's move forward. We talked last week about the new NCA contact rule, which today is the 26th. Um, contact's done. If you're, if you're not a junior or senior, you should not be talking to college coaches. Uh, if you call them, they should be very, very direct. Appreciate your phone call. I'm not allowed to speak with you. We'll be able to August 1st, prior to your junior year, click, um, not being able to set up phone calls through travel teams or through PBR or anything like that anymore. But we did see kind of a phenomenon over the last two weeks, Matt, what, Give me a little bit lay of the lamb. What did you see as we're following some of these younger players as coaches were getting ready for this this rule change? It felt like summertime. Uh, you know, you scroll through Twitter and, uh, you know, 25 is committing, 26 is committing, and uh, even uh, 
2028 here in, in North right. Carolina committing. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it was, uh, it was very interesting. A lot of conversations with people on that and, uh, you know, the verdicts out if, uh, if it'll change or if it slows down for a couple of weeks and then we hit summertime and, uh, it picks, picks back up. I'm interested in see how it plays out, especially with those guys in the last two weeks have made some commitments and, I talked to about four of them or four of their parents and, you know, all of them were dream school. Coaches were great, great fit, has the academics. So I'm getting ready to make a broad statement and it's not directed at anyone because every single individual's recruiting process is different. What they're looking for, why they're committing is different, but those players that have committed have lost complete control of what's going to happen to them in the next two years. They're not allowed to have contact with their schools. I, I, I'm waiting for the way schools are going to kind of get around that to their commits, whether they're they're sending like passing notes and during class, you're, you're kind of talking to the coach, hey, can you tell him this for me? I don't know how they're going to do it. But get to August 1 of that junior year, those guys just kind of been sitting on the sideline waiting for this phone call to happen. And very few schools are going to continue to evaluate those players. So now if we get to August 1, the coach picks up the phone and goes, hey, you know, we just got four other commitments and we're excited, but we're going to be a little overloaded and hang in there with us. We'll figure it out. But I don't know what that scholarship's going to be. We'll see. Just hang in there. And now you wait another six months, seven months, and, hey, we're going to bring you in as a recruited walk-on your freshman year, and then we're going to figure out the money as your sophomore. But we'll hang in there with us. We're going to figure it out. Those guys don't have a whole lot of leverage, whereas the guys that remain uncommitted – that are that are higher level players. I'm not talking about all players, but higher level players. They're going to have 10, 20 schools trying to vie for their their services, trying to set up visits, and th- those players are going to have some leverage in terms of making their decisions and putting some pressure on schools in terms of where do you really see me? Am I a top tier guy for you, or am I the next tier guy for you? And you know, you talked about when schools are bringing kids on visits. It mattered a lot in your your commitment process. Um, you know, with, with schools that you were talking to, one school kind of put you on the second the second weekend. That school's gone. I'm moving on. You know, I, I think, and again, broad, the, the guys that have committed here in the last couple weeks have lost some of that power. Yeah. Um, I, how that process goes will be will be interesting. I'm sure they'll, they'll find ways to keep in touch with them. And uh, then you go into, if you're committed right now and all of a sudden have an injury and you know, so you have to have Tommy John, you know, what's your, what's your standing going to be with that school when you can't have uh, legal communication. And right. uh, like you said, with the visits, uh, you know, I think from a player standpoint, those schools that are doing everything they can to get you in first state possible, that, that says they're, they're all in on you versus the school that's maybe pushing you back. Hey, you know, you got this football game and, you know, four weeks want to bring you in for an official there, but you know, they're bringing in kids, their first three home football games. And if, if you're not in that group, what does that say to you? Yeah. So I, it's going to be interesting to, to, to kind of follow, um, you know, if you're a player and you've, you've kind of, you're hearing from coaches and you've kind of figured out how they're going to let us know, you know, put it out there, let the world know how, how these guys are doing it. And um, we're not trying to get anybody in trouble. We're not going to publish anything that's against the rules. Um, but if there's a way that people have found a, a way around it, you know, allow us to continue to educate because I, I, I don't, I don't know what it's going to, how they're going to do it. And, and I know you're, you're pretty hung up on, they are going to do it. They're going to figure out a way. Yeah. I, I just don't see how they're going to do it. 
So, um, I, I think the rules intended for good for yep. coaches and players. Uh, I think those guys have done it a certain way for so long. I just can they let themselves slow down and and not worry about you know three and four years out, and then you know if you're a player, you know going through the process and you've had communication with schools and then, you know, you go that first week and there's no contact, you know, what does, do you feel, feel pressure, feel like you're not being recruited anymore? Or do you realize it's, Hey, these are the new rules. I don't have to worry about that right now. Yeah. That fir- the first class is going to go through a lot of that. I, they'll, and they'll be the Guinea pig, um, you know, years two and three, I think it'll calm down a little bit in terms of, okay, we know what the lay of the land is now. You know, kind of like what we know, we, we got a feel for how things work now. If you're the top 3% of your class in North Carolina, you're going to have a chance to have committed by the time you're a junior. You know, and that's the way it's rolled. Whether it's freshman year or sophomore year, it's that top 3%. The top 8 to 10% typically commit when they're juniors. And then the, the other 90 and another what was that, 35% commit during the fall of their senior year. And then the other 55% commit during the you know, after November of their senior year. We know that because we've seen those numbers play out for six years. And we followed those numbers and it's played out for longer than that. You know, this is going to change that, obviously. So, you know, how quickly it changes it and how, how these guys adapt to it. That first class is they're in for a rough road because they don't know. It's like, what's the what's the roller coaster at Disney World that's completely dark? Uh, oh. My wife, you, Space Mountain? There you go, Space Mountain. They're, they're on Space Mountain. They don't know which way the turns and twists are going to come. But after they get off the ride and they talk to the people that are in the line, you know, by the time you get to the end of the line, they're going to go, okay, I have an idea of what's going on at least. Still, I'm still going in dark because I've never been through it before myself, but at least I know kind of what to expect. So uh, we'll tie this thing up. Um, what are you looking forward to? I know we got one more power – Power 25 coming out next week uh, as we start heading towards the the state playoffs. we got conference tournaments coming up. What, what are you looking forward to here in the next week um, as you're getting out and, and seeing some guys? Uh, does any team win a, a conference tournament that's not in the top half of their league uh, to really change the seating? Um, yep. Uh, last Power 25 will be interesting to see how many of those teams lose in the first round. Never never fails. And then uh, we got NFL draft tomorrow. I know we'll both be watching that or following along with that. Uh, Exciting time of the time of year for football fans. And, uh, you know, love hearing the evaluations from those guys evaluating football guys and uh, see what we can use with that, you know, in some of the the baseball write ups. Reddit has not jumped on this yet, but I am hearing that I am going to be in the top five. So I'm waiting for Reddit to push that, Vegas to jump on it, put a number on that thing. And then if any GMs out there need a phone number, I've got it. I can carry a clipboard, baby. I, I have no <laughs> issues doing that. I can do it with the best of them. So um, that thing's been wild with Levis um, and watching Reddit. And maybe the Panthers did call him. I don't know. But watching a Reddit board change Vegas odds on where a guy going from maybe the – fourth quarterback to maybe the first overall pick that's been that's been incredible so you know even and it's something you know we can we can step back and look at baseball deals like that a little bit too where a guy gets hot and and Matt Payne goes in and watches him and then the 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 coach of that team calls all the team Matt Payne was in here today they're gonna make a move Matt Payne was in here today and all of a sudden the next time he throws there's 20 schools there 
all trying to make a decision. That's how that works. It's like like what we're seeing with Levis and that Reddit board. Um, so that's been interesting to follow. But yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm see what my Falcons do. If uh, we can kind of secure up our defense and find another playmaker on offense, we're probably going to the Super Bowl this year. So, well, every every, every team's uh, going to the Super Bowl right now, and every <laughs> like you, I think you say it every year. Every every guy gets the one guy they wanted. That's it. Picking, uh, picking first or or thirty second. Ever you know they get the guy they wanted the whole time. We were zeroed in on him from the from the time he was a junior. So we're going to end it right there. For Matt Payne, I'm Brandon Hall. This is the Prep Baseball Report of North Carolina Podcast, and we'll see you at the field.